This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The country is heading towards a cost-of-living crisis. Global supply chains are at critical capacity, driving up the cost of everything from petrol to milk. Housing and rent prices have soared, but as prices are rising, wages are staying the same, or for some, even going backwards. As an election looms, this strain on Australians' budgets is set to hit those who can least afford it. Today, I'm talking to Head of News Mike Tisher and Live News Editor Patrick Keneally about rising costs and falling wages. It's Friday, the 18th of March. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. And good morning, Pat. Morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, sorry, you hate being called Pat, don't you? Should I say (laughs) good morning, Patrick? It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mike, what is driving this cost of living increase that we've heard so much about lately? So I guess the most obvious one everyone's been talking about in the past while has been the price of petrol. It's been sent into the stratosphere by the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is obviously having an impact on people very immediately in Australia and around the world with the cost of fuel. Before that, we had all the supply chain problems that were caused by COVID. And then recently we've had the flooding, which is going to, will will probably play, play through into prices as well. So there's a whole range of quite large things, largely out of control of the federal government that are putting a lot of upward pressure on prices in a range of areas, but I guess the fuel and energy ones are the most significant at the moment. I was reading a Greg Jericho column on inflation, and he talks about inflation really being driven by two things. The first is obviously increased demand, people wanting to buy more things, and that's really picked up for certain things during COVID. So we had a run on laptops, on home printers, on office equipment. And as the economy recovers from COVID as well, you start to see people wanting to spend more money, get back into the economy, spending money on holidays and so on. But it's also driven by supply chain constraints as well. So at the same time as people wanting to buy a whole lot more stuff, goods, manufactured goods particularly from overseas, there's actually less supply. And that's causing a real problem for the government because it actually limits what they can do in response. If they want to stop people spending money and slow down the economy a bit, you can always raise interest rates and that'll do one thing to stop consumer demand. But you can't do anything about the other side of it. The government's very powerless to come in and interfere on these global supply chain issues. Of course, the other part of cost of living is costs going up, but also wages not keeping pace with those costs. And that is something that's been a problem in the Australian economy for long before these immediate crises for for various reasons. Yeah, Michelle O'Neill from the ACTU said this week that the average worker was $800 worse off in 2021 than they were the year before. And that's the steepest cut in real wages for 20 years. Look, I think you can talk to anyone these days about the cost of living pressures that they're facing. And most people have a similar story. The price of groceries has gone up and also housing particularly. Mm. So housing has grown at a phenomenal rate, 23%, I think, over the um, course of last year. So people are facing these huge increases in costs, but at the same time, they don't feel like they're making any more money than they were 
a year ago or even three years ago for that matter, wages have grown at a very glacial pace in Australia and it's causing people to feel economically insecure. And obviously the government's worried about it because they're talking about it more and more and Labor sees this as an issue that they can really make ground of politically as well because people are genuinely worried about how they're going to make ends meet in a lot of cases. I think we should be clear about who this affects more, you know, who suffers the worst effects from cost of living rises. Obviously, there are some particular sectors that do people who have to drive a lot, either because they live in the regions or that's part of their job or they live in the outer suburbs where there's poor public transport. They're particularly affected by the petrol price rises, obviously, but also just people on on lower wages, on casualised employment and who struggle to make ends meet from week to week rather than having some a cushion as people in more well paid jobs do. It's those people in particular in the casual workforce who can't rely on their work coming regularly, who are caught out by these sharp rises in foodstuffs, essentials, and also petrol if they have to drive. Another group I'd add into that is the people who are employed as contractors, so people like Deliveroo riders and Uber riders, deliverers for Amazon, often they are given what basically amounts to piecework uh, for deliveries Although their costs are rising, fuel, for example, the contracts with these major organisations is not. And they're having to absorb the difference, which in many cases is a lot of money. And we should add also uh, to the story on house prices that rents, although they haven't gone up by as much as the just quite extraordinary growth in house prices, they have gone up. Last year, they went up by the largest amount since since 2007. It was more like it's uh, just under 10% compared with, you know, getting on for 25% in house prices. But that has a real effect on people in, in on lower incomes and also in the regions where rents have gone up significantly, partly because mm. of the moves from people moving from the cities during the pandemic as they could or wanted to work remotely. And what about people who live on welfare or rely on welfare payments? Has there been a welfare increase that exceeds inflation? A short answer No, welfare payments haven't kept up with inflation. There is a rise which is coming through now, which would amount to an increase of $20.10 per fortnight for individuals and $30.20 for couples. That's on age and disability support pensions and carers payments as well. But that is going to be completely wiped out by inflation. So in a word, no, they haven't kept up. Is this an election issue and are the parties proposing solutions? Uh, We're going to find out, I guess, what the government's answer to that is in the budget. But what we believe, because it was written in The Australian this week, is that they are not at least going to bring forward the tax cuts plan for a couple of years further down the track. They had hoped to bring those forward to this budget, but that's now not going to happen for fear of overheating the economy. It's hard for them to do anything without affecting the budget bottom line, which is already massively in deficit <laughs> since the, all the spending during the pandemic. So the options are limited, really, I would have thought. Yeah, one option is keeping the low-income tax offset, the Lamington. But again, it's expensive and there's not a lot of money left in the coffers for them to um, make big spending commitments on. They've also talked about doing something with fuel excise, but that would really be a minor change to the fuel excise. Last time John Howard did it, I think he cut it by one and a half cents a litre. And when petrol's at over $2, that's a 0.5% cut. So 
any movement on fuel excess is going to cost the budget a lot of money and it's going to result in very minor, if negligible, savings for consumers. But I think in terms of the political cost of cost of living and inflation, I think Joe Biden summed it up quite well. You know, he was asked by a Fox News reporter at a press conference, do you think uh, inflation is a political liability for you? And he thought he was off mic when he was responding but uh, he was caught on a kind of hot mic moment where he said in a very sarcastic tone, no, it's a great asset, more inflation. More inflation. And then under his breath, what a stupid son of a bitch. What a stupid son of a bitch. So it's like <laughs> he summed it up quite well. It's, it's definitely a political liability for the government and it's going to feed into any anger that already exists with the government over a whole lot of other issues, including the response to the floods and bushfires and so on. It's a classic question that oppositions put they don't necessarily have a good answer to, but they, they just say, do you feel better off than you did when this government came to power? And if people are suffering a, a recent increase in the cost of living, then obviously the, the, the expected answer is no, I don't, and then it's a good reason to vote for the opposition. But um, whether Labor has any credible policies to put forward to address the, the cost of living rise mm, kind of remains to be seen, but they may not need to. If some of these inflationary pressures are out of government's controls. Surely wages is something that governments can have an influence on or over. Does either party have anything to say about wages leading up to the election? Look, Labor has been talking a lot about wages, mostly in the context of how the industrial relations system in Australia is really stacked against a worker over you know, the past few decades, we've really seen a hollowing out of workers' rights to go on strike and to take collective action to secure better conditions and wages. And even the Reserve Bank has identified that as one of the problems that's feeding into poor wage growth in Australia. So the government has these really big levers to affect wages and to cut down on inflation in wages, which is the way they've been traditionally used. But in terms of going in and saying we need to pay X workers in X industry more, they generally don't get down to that level. The area where it does change is often where people have a direct relationship with the federal government. So people like in childcare or aged care, where the government is actually paying providers. And in those areas, they can actually mandate to increase wages in those sectors. So Labor's promised better uh, wages for aged care workers, also promised more money for childcare, which may flow through to the workers themselves. But public sector wage growth grew by only 2.1% in the past year, and that was partly due to both state and federal governments holding down public sector wages through the pandemic. And that, whether the decision can fairly be laid at the federal government or not, in many cases it was state governments, including state Labor governments, people like nurses and, you know, other frontline workers who were right in the thick of the pandemic who had the worst working experiences through the pandemic also saw their wages being held down at that time. And you feel like that, well, might have a political impact on the federal government, even though it wasn't necessarily the federal government who was responsible for those decisions. For a long time, governments, including the coalition, have been saying, look, just be patient, wait, wage growth will pick up and wage inflation will occur as unemployment gets down to um, levels where companies have to compete to employ people. So this week we've seen the unemployment rate come down to 4%, which is the lowest rate since 2008. If it drops below 4%, that will be the lowest unemployment rate since they started collecting figures, which I think was around in 1973. But yet we're not really seeing wages pick up. So there is this big question, is that link between the unemployment rate and wages 
actually relevant anymore? Is that link broken? And how do we factor in underemployment? Because we know with insecure work, that has gone up very high. Does the unemployment rate mean today what it did in 1974? Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why people are saying that the, that the link is broken. That headline rate of 4% does not mean what it meant because so many people are in the casual workforce or are not working as much, are working but not as much as they want to. And there are a lot more people actively seeking work than the, than the people who are, who are captured by that figure. Some business groups have come out and said, you know, we have to be really careful about a wages rush, all these threats by the unions, because that will lead to more inflation. So how much do we know about whether that's entirely true or not? Traditionally, that's always been the fear of governments. They've tried to keep it a cap on wage increases because they didn't want to see that kind of breakout inflation that occurred in the 1970s and early in the 1980s, which is often very, very difficult for governments to control. So it's this kind of boogeyman that's hanging over the question of inflation. But again, we need to question whether that kind of frame of reference is relevant today at all because we're dealing with a very, very different time than the 1970s. The problem now is the stagnant rate of wage growth. It's not a fear out of breakout inflation of wages. And and workers or many workers are just not in a position to push for those kind of wage rises in the same way as they certainly as they did in the 1970s. The rate of unionisation is much lower. The number of enterprise bargaining agreements has been dropping. A lot more people are in, you know, the gig economy and and, and those casualised kind of employments where it's much harder to put pressure on on employers. So this fear of wage inflation is, as Patrick said, it's like, the opposite is the case. It's wage stagnation that we should be more worried about and it's not wages that are putting pushing up inflation. In fact, I read this week that it's the first time in a parliamentary term that real wages have actually gone down this century. And Pat, if there's no immediate short-term solutions, are there at least long-term solutions that can look at some of these pressures? Certainly there's some things that they can look at in the long term that would reduce our reliance on imported fuels, essentially, from um, autocratic regimes overseas. We, we know from Russia and their invasion of Ukraine that we can no longer rely on fuel coming from overseas as a certainty. We're going into a period of increasing instability in our region. So shifting from imported fuel to EVs, producing renewable energy in Australia from wind and solar, will dramatically reduce our reliance on imported fuel and and it'll be cheaper for consumers in the long run. But that's not an immediate solution. That's over the next 10 to 20 years you're looking at. It could certainly be speeded up and there's things the government can do, like introducing incentives, but none of that is being proposed by the federal government at the moment. The other long-term thing they could do, but there's no sign that they will, is do something to get control of the most egregious sector that is where people's costs are hurting most, which is the housing market. If there was proposals to rein in the ridiculous growth in house prices through making investment properties less attractive in through the tax system or imposing rent controls of some form or another or, you know, all the various measures that have been quite widely canvassed that they could do to rein in the housing market. But as we know, these proposals are currently off the table from both major parties. So yes, there are things they could do, but no, don't hold your breath. These issues, as we've discussed, can be really tricky. They're very complicated. There's lots of international pressures that the government can't control, some things they can control. Mike, how do you report all that in a way that is meaningful to people? 
it's a matter of contrasting forms of reporting. So it's really important to focus on the people who are most affected by cost of living pressures. That is people who are less well off, people who are unemployed uh, or underemployed, who are suffering from rental or housing pressures, as almost everyone is, and to tell their stories and to tell them exactly how that affects them in a very direct manner. And then also, obviously, to apply analysis of economic experts that we have on our team to try to explain what the government says or the opposition says. They're obviously trying to, to make the figures tell their own story, but we can apply some good analysis to that to to try to try to tease out what the reality is. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Mike, about telling it through people's stories as well. So Stephanie Convery, one of our inequality reporters, has this week written about the issue of cost of living. And one of the case studies she's spoken to is a nurse in WA who um, has a few children, is a single mother, has said that she's always been able to make ends meet, but it's just got harder and harder. And recently, her weekly petrol bill has gone up from around $60 to around $90, which has made a big impact on her weekly household budget. And now she's down to sort of having $5 left over at the end of a pay cycle, whereas before it was maybe $100 just to cover any contingencies that came up. So I think telling it through people's real life experiences is a good way to do it, as well as obviously the ways that we do it through explaining broader economic concepts and things at the national level and the international level. Next, lost cities and logo conspiracy theories. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. I'm going to break with protocol to talk about the potato, the world's biggest potato that isn't a potato. Do you, do you feel robbed, Gabs? What's it? <laughs> yes. I, I, I personally invested in Doug and I wanted him to be the biggest potato. I never thought it was a potato. <laughs> it didn't look much like a potato, to be honest. <laughs> it looks like a potato. What the hell is a tuber of a gourd? Anyway, we could direct readers to find all about the potato that is not the potato at The Guardian. Mike, what was it for you? So my favourite story of this week was one that kind of took me away from the immediate news and back to 1362 when a town in the UK on the sort of near the Humber estuary, which is a very it's in the very shallow part of the North Sea where the coastline has changed a huge amount over over the centuries. And it was about a town called Ravenser Odd, called Yorkshire's Atlantis, which was destroyed in a storm by, in 1362 and sort of sunk beneath the waves. And now they think they think they're gonna find it. A professor of sedimentology who um, sedimentology. Heard, sedimentology. Who heard about it when he was on a family day out at the seaside and thought he'd try and investigate it. Uh, and he wants to teach people about the pr- problems of climate change through it. I don't know if that will work, but I just want them to find the town and, and see if some of it's still left, which they think some of it will be. Just wondering why my careers counsellor never suggested I become a professor of sedimentology. <laughs> I, feel, I feel ripped off. Um, <laughs> Patrick, what can't you get out of your head? Oh, look, I hesitate to raise this one, but I think for me it has to be the um, the phallic logo from uh, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet's Women's Network, which uh, came to prominence this week, first amongst Twitter users who um, believed. Uh, now, now, if you haven't seen this logo, I'd urge you to go and look it up. On um, we've we've done a story about it. <sighs> 
Gabs, what do you think it looks like? You say you say phallic. <laughs> I say, um, can I say boobs yeah. on the podcast? <laughs> I think you just did. Okay. Some people were, uh, I think, comparing it to looking like a tampon as well. Um, but this uh, logo had sat quietly on the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet's website until it was picked up by some Twitter users um, and came to prominence with everybody trying to work it out what it was. A lot of people saw it as like uh, just an extension of what they what they saw as Scott Morrison's kind of women's problem and his disrespect towards women. But... I don't know. I think, you know, when you're given the choice between conspiracy and cock-up, I think um, cock up, it's huh? probably the latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, I did laugh at the tweet where someone said, you know there was a junior woman in this meeting who tried to say, yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> guys. And yet it had sat unnoticed for three years before people <laughs> yeah. picked it up and leapt on it as deciding it was something that had been foisted on us in the past few weeks uh, to promote some kind of conspiracy about. I, I also think the way that it came about was that they already had an existing W for the Women's Network and a little kind of roundish tablet-looking thing for all the other advocacy networks that exist within the department. And they merged the two logos. Mm. And I think at that point, perhaps someone should have thought, hmm, does this look a bit strange? Together. Um, together. But uh, it seems no one, no one had that conversation. Or maybe someone did have that conversation but uh, was not listened to. I feel like there's a good job out there as a logo consultant. Just show me your logo before you launch it. I'll tell you if it has any bad connotations. (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much, Mike, for joining us today. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Pat. Thanks very much. That's it for today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or even leave a rating or review. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, Camilla Hannan and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday. I hope you have a wonderful weekend in the meantime and we'll see you then. <laughs>